Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's open our time of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to gather together as men and to get into your word together. Lord, I pray that you open our eyes so that we might see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he took the time to write these letters and that these letters have been preserved over so many years. And we can read them today and they seem so applicable even in our time. So just bless our time together this morning. Help us to learn from 2 Timothy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the evidence from the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters suggests that the outcome of Paul's trial before Nero in 62 AD was positive and that Paul was acquitted at that time. And after his acquittal, Paul left Rome and probably embarked on a fourth missionary journey circling back to many of the churches that he planted to see how they're doing. He left his co-worker Titus on Crete, and he left his co-worker Timothy in the city of Ephesus to deal with some renegade leaders in the church there. When Timothy struggled, Paul went back to Ephesus. Once there, Paul suffered a great deal of harm from a guy named Alexander, one of those leaders And he was once again imprisoned and taken to Rome. This time, Paul knew that he was most likely going to not make it out of prison and that he would be executed. So from that prison cell, he wrote the letter that we're going to look at this morning. And in the letter, Paul wrote to Timothy and asked him to come quickly to Rome before he would pass on to the next life. Paul's letter includes challenges to stay faithful to the gospel even in the midst of suffering and death. Paul wrote this emotional letter that we call 2 Timothy from a dark, damp prison cell. This was unlike the prison that he had experienced before where he was under house arrest. People could visit him. He could speak to different groups. He was pretty much in this cell alone. The Roman emperor Nero had been slowly descending into madness Since his ascent to the throne in AD 54, Nero likely started the great fire in Rome in AD 64. He ascended to his throne in AD 54. That fire burned most, you know, half the city down. With the residents in Rome in an uproar, Christians became the convenient target for Nero. And he used believers as scapegoats. So Paul, in his mid to late 60s, was one of those who was caught up in this persecution and would later be beheaded by Roman officials soon after writing this letter. It's likely that he was held in a small mammontine prison cell like this one. And I guess you can go to Rome and you can actually visit this place. But if you notice his prison cell, there's a hole in the ceiling showing that his cell would be open to bad weather, to the cold, the rain, the snow, all that, all that coming in there. It was not 
a happy place to be. But it is from this setting that Paul writes this letter, the last recorded writing we have from the Apostle Paul. A few other interesting facts about the letter. Paul refers to 23 individuals by name, which is pretty interesting. He had a large network of people, and, and these people were loyal to him, but he also calls out a lot of people that were disloyal to him. And then another interesting fact in the letter of 2 Timothy is that Paul names Pharaoh's magicians. Now, in the book of Exodus, you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and did all these, did all these miracles, and then the magicians would copy them? Well, we never know in the book of Exodus what the names of those magicians are, but somehow Paul knew what their names were. So apparently through oral tradition, it was, those names were passed on. Janus and Jambres. He refers to Timothy as a man of God. And Timothy's name is found most often in almost all of Paul's writings. So he was, he was a very, very important person in Paul's life. And as I mentioned, the letter of 2 Timothy records Paul's last words on earth. So it's often said that a person's last and final words are said to be their best words. For example, the last words of John Newton, the former slave trader and the author of the hymn we all love, Amazing Grace, his last words were this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Those were his last words. And I found some other examples of last words. Steve Jobs, it's recorded his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And then Bob Marley, his last words were, money can't buy life. And then I found the last words of Buddha. Buddha says, monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Work hard to gain your own salvation. What was Paul's final message to Timothy and to us? I want to suggest that we could summarize his message in three words. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. I think this is what was on the heart of Paul. And I want to suggest there's four reasons why Paul said to guard the gospel. Paul exhorts Timothy to guard the gospel, first of all, because the gospel is a treasure that's worth losing everything for and even suffering for. Secondly, in chapter 2, we see that the gospel is the key to real life change, inside-out change for unbelievers and for believers. Third, in chapter three, we see that the gospel is easily misunderstood and twisted by false teachers. And fourth, in chapter four, that the gospel is a timeless message and it is worth dying for. So let's take a look at Paul's final words. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 just to give us a setting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So the letter begins with just Paul's tremendous affection for Timothy. He calls him son. He thinks and prays for him all the time. And he recognizes the influence that his family had on his faith. See, the seeds of the gospel were planted from his grandmother to his mother to Timothy. But it appears that, that Paul was the one who was the spiritual father to Timothy and led him to faith in Christ. So now could I ask, uh, maybe Ray, could you read this next section? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 6 to 12. For this I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give you us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So first we see that Paul is saying we need to guard the gospel because the gospel is a treasure worth losing everything and even suffering for. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling Timothy that the gospel the good news about Jesus is a treasure that must be guarded and is worth suffering for. We see here in verse 8, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord and join with me in suffering for the gospel. And that reminds me of what he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And I love verses 9 and 10 here, where Paul reminds Timothy of the gospel. 
He says, he saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we've done. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then we see here, he goes on in verses 13 to 14. He says, what you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The NASB version translates it a little different. It says in verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You know, as I've read through this letter multiple times in my preparation for this, and I think as Paul was knowing that his death was near, I think Paul was deeply concerned about the future of the church. I think he was probably in his cell thinking, would the church continue to spread and grow? Would the church be taken over by these false teachers? Would the gospel be lost? Would Timothy persevere in the ministry? Paul had lots of reasons to be concerned, even about Timothy. I mean, Timothy was young. He was most likely more introverted. And, you know, it mentions in, in one of Paul's writings, he had a weak stomach. So Paul was deeply concerned. That's why he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. What is that good deposit? It's what the NASB says is a treasure. The treasure, I believe, is the gospel. Ray, could you continue to read and read uh, verses 15 to 18 in chapter 1? You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the house of Onesphorus, because he has refreshed me and is not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So we see that Paul was experiencing a tremendous amount of disloyalty. Notice that Paul says everyone in Asia has deserted him. And then he names names. It's interesting to note that he calls them out by names. And I think that was as a warning to, for people to stay away from these men. But then he also experienced great loyalty from this one guy, Onesiphorus. Check out verse 17. You know, perhaps at his own risk of being arrested, he searched the city of Rome until he found Paul. Wow. I mean, that, how long did that take for him to find him? How many prison cells did he have to look for? But he most likely provided Paul with fellowship, with food, perhaps clothing, through that opening in this prison cell that we saw. So what an amazing display of loyalty from this one, one man. 
And then we move into chapter two. And by the way, at the end of chapter two, I'll take comments and questions. Chapter two, verse one, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So in chapter two, Paul encourages Timothy to guard the gospel because the gospel is the key to real life change. Not just helping unbelievers become believers, but helping believers grow in their faith. He tells them to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, unless you're new here, you know that one of my passions is for gospel-driven sanctification. That the gospel is not only brings us to Christ for our salvation, but the gospel is the key to our spiritual growth as well. You see, we don't come to know God by grace and then grow by works. No, we come to know God by grace and we grow by grace. In other words, I desperately need Jesus just as much today as the day that I first trusted him. And here's what it looks like. And I borrowed this from Jim Reske. Thanks, Jim, for sharing this. Being strong in grace is the same as what Peter wrote when he says, grow in grace, 2 Peter 3.18. It's grace that brings us to God and grace that helps us to grow more like Jesus. And I think Paul was telling Timothy, be strong in grace. Keep growing in grace. And when you grow in grace, the gospel becomes bigger and bigger in your life and starts to change you, just like the cross becomes bigger and bigger as time goes on. And I love what my friend, Jerry Bridges, who is now with the Lord, the way he put it in one of his books. I love this quote that he says, our worst days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. And our best days are never so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace. My point is that if we don't guard the gospel, the cross will begin to shrink. And over time, it will become irrelevant. And I think this is what Paul, what Paul was concerned about, that the gospel was going to shrink or lose its meaning. And then in verse 2, he says, The things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, as a navigator staff, this is like, this is like one of our key verses. It's almost like I'm under contractual obligation as a navigator to comment on this verse. I could have easily spent our whole time talking about this verse because it is so important and it's so, you know, not practiced, to be honest. Paul is exhorting Timothy to multiply so the gospel can continue to spread indefinitely. Notice that there are four generations mentioned here. To Timothy, Timothy to reliable people, and then reliable people to others. This is what it looks like. So let me ask you a question. If you had a choice where I, I could give you $1 million today, or you could get one penny doubled every day for 31 days, what would you pick? Well, you know, a million dollars today sounds pretty good, you know? But if you chose that that route to just take the million dollars, you would have missed the opportunity to have 10 million, 700, over $10 million, almost $11 million, a penny doubled every day for 31 days, $10 million. That's an example of, of multiplication. And I found this 
interesting quote from Billy Graham, and I love Billy Graham. I've admired him. He's one of my heroes. But listen to what he said. He, he said this, one of the first verses of scripture that Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, called me to memorize was 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. He said, this is like a mathematical formula for spreading the gospel and enlarging the church. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy shared what he knew to faithful men, and faithful men were supposed to teach others also. And so the process goes on and on. If every believer followed this pattern, the church would reach the entire world in one generation. If the church followed this pattern, we could reach the world in one generation. And then he says this, mass crusades to which I've committed my life to will never accomplish the Great Commission. One-on-one -on -one discipling relationships will. Wow. Billy Graham recognized and I loved his mass crusades. I've been to those mass crusades, but he recognized mass crusades will never accomplish the Great Commission, but one-on-one -on -one discipling can. Every follower of Jesus should be able to answer these questions. Who am I discipling? And who is discipling me? Who am I discipling and who is discipling me? Every church should be able to answer two questions. Do we have a plan for making disciples? And the second question, is it working? Do we have a plan to make disciples and is it working? All right, let's move on. Rex, can I have you read chapter two, verses three to seven? Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Paul is saying the gospel is worth suffering for. He lays down three metaphors that involve some form of like suffering or perseverance that's necessary. So we see there's you know, three different ways for us to stay on mission. And he, he first talks about a soldier and how a soldier stays focused, keeps your, keeps your priorities straight and limits distractions. And then he talks about an athlete. An athlete lives with integrity. They follow the rules. And then there's the farmer. The farmer invests in himself. Each of these three occupations need great perseverance to succeed. And, and so they're, they're important for us to reflect on. I mean, consider if a soldier who stops fighting before the battle is finished, they'll never see victory. If an athlete stops running before the race is over, they will never win a race. The farmer who stops working before the harvest will, will never be able to share the fruit of his, his own crops. So these are important metaphors that, uh, that Paul lays down. And let's continue on. Rex, you want to continue? Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He says, this is my gospel. 
Let's remember what the word gospel means. It means good news. I love that, good news. Because news is, not, news is something that's happened. It's, it's, it's not something that I can do or, or I orchestrate. It's something happened that's life-changing. The gospel is good news. For Paul, it was the best news. It, it was not about more money. It was not about more love or more status or more stuff. The good news is about a, having a real relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I love where it says, God's word is not chained. You know, the Bible has been attacked more than almost any other book in history. There have been times where they've tried to destroy every single copy of the Bible. And, they, and I think they came close at one point in history before the printing press, maybe. It has been burned. It has been banned. It has been mocked, twisted, ignored. But God's word stands forever. Isaiah 48 Verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. No government, no religious authorities, no skeptics, no scientists, no philosophers, or no human book burners have ever been able to stop the work of the word of God. Isn't that awesome? Yet, we can see in, in our world, there is a sense in which God's word is bound, and it's bound in so many pulpits across America where you hear more about, you, you hear more like self-help books than those who proclaim God's word. Or when the scripture is used sparingly like a spice in a message instead of being the core of that message. So in this last part where he says, this is a trustworthy saying, that's most likely an early Christian hymn that Paul is quoting. And he's, he's reflecting on while he's, while he's in prison. All right, let's finish this uh, chapter two, then we'll take some questions and comments. Ray, could you read verses 14 to 26? Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Yet, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands sealed with his inscription the lord knows whose are his and everyone who confesses the name of the lord must turn away from wickedness in a large house there are not only of gold and silver but also of wood and clay some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble if a man cleanses himself from the latter he will be an instrument for noble purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. 
Those who oppose him must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. So Timothy is, was being attacked by false teachers, just as in, in many ways the church is being attacked today. So what are we to do? What do we do about that? Well, I think first we need to remind people to stick to the essentials, the essentials, like guarding the gospel. Secondly, we need to be sure we rightly divide the word, which means to teach God's word accurately. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode and remember... On your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.